you're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Hello, my name is Kevin Milo, and I'm doing introductions on Primary Medicine Podcast because I've got a super exciting announcement, and I'm more excited than usual about podcasting this this week. And so let me go through the brief introduction. As many of you know, I'm an emergency physician based out of Edmonton, Alberta, and I work in a relatively small but busy community site. And I hold uh, an academic appointment with the University of Alberta. And joining me, as always, is uh, Dr. Dimitri Raniff. And uh, Dimitri, why don't you say a couple of words, and then I'm going to get to the very exciting announcement. Most of this is know me already. I'm a, I'm a family doctor with a practice in Gatineau, Quebec, and a practice in Ottawa, Ontario. I also do fertility in Montreal, and I'm a faculty lecturer at McGill University. And I'm also excited for the announcement today. So maybe you can just go ahead and, and go with it. After the announcement, we'll give a, a brief chat about foreign body removals from the cornea. But yeah, go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, so... I'm super, super excited about this, and it's because what uh, Dimitri and I are a part of is another um, startup called MD Empowerment. And last year, we held our first national conference uh, centered on physician finance, and this year, we're doing it again. Uh, we're going to be in Toronto again this year, May 27th and 28th. And what MD Empowerment is about is it's an educational conference set up around physician finance. And what's so important and so unique about what we do is that we don't take money from the finance industry. We're different from every other educational seminar put on by investment houses, banks, and other groups. We're out there literally simply to educate you. Because one of the problems is that anytime you sit down with these folks from these big investment firms, the answer inevitably comes back to, you should invest with our firm. So doctors aren't getting bias-free information. And so we thought we would create something out there that is unique, that is unbiased. We have no financial disclosures. We don't take any money from the finance industry. We're just there to educate our fellow physicians. And one of the biggest pitfalls that we identified over years of sort of doing this in a smaller scale is that doctors are just extremely busy. And we don't often have time to sit back and look at our personal finances our corporate finances, our investment portfolio, or even our taxes. And we trust people to give us advice, but maybe we're not always, you know, choosing the best advice for ourselves. The parallel that I really link this to is journal club. You know, when you sit around a journal club and everybody looks at the introduction and conclusion and says, wow, this is really impressive. But there's that one person at journal club who doesn't look at the conclusion, doesn't look at the introduction, but instead he or she dives right into the results and the tables and pulls apart a very different understanding of the of the data and the research. And that's what I really want to inspire the physician community to do so that when you sit down with your accountant or your financial planner, you're really asking the right questions and you're coming up with financial solutions that are relevant for you. Is it's really not about the answers, it's really about the questions that are going to lead you down a different financial path. And you know, this podcast in many respects marks milestone primary medicine podcast has grown exponentially since we started we're now up to over 3,000 listeners a month and uh, we're very excited about this growing community that we have we appreciate everyone who sends in their input and feedback 
And um, joining us at the MD Empowerment Conference is a great way to meet and actually meet us in person. We'd love to meet some of you who've been uh, loyal listeners uh, with us for a long time. We do unfortunately have to charge for it. I wish we didn't. Uh, as you can tell, uh, Primary Medicine Podcast free because we believe in what we're doing. We do have to charge something so that we can cover the cost of renting a conference room and things. But honestly, if you're struggling with money or you know it's going to be costly for you to fly in or drive in and stay, then just call us or link to us on the website and we'll find a way to get you there at a reduced rate. But for the run-of-the-mill participants, listen, we've got a great discount code. It's available on the Primary Medicine website and it's essentially Primed17. You'll see it there. Use the discount code for a substantial break on uh, the conference fees. And before I get ahead of myself, it is coming this May 27th and 28th. It's in Toronto. It's conveniently located. Um, it'd be great to have some of you out. And whether you're Canadian trained, American trained, or overseas, I guarantee you, you're going to find the material to be highly, highly relevant. A lot of people have described it as, as some life-changing education around their finances because I don't know how it is in a lot of American schools or overseas, but certainly in Canada, we just don't get enough training on the business side of physician finance. So at any rate, I'm going to stop going on and on about it. And we're going to move on to um, this podcast's content. Is that all right with you, Dimitri? Do you have any thoughts or ideas? Certainly, we don't get any unbiased education, uh, financial education uh, around this topic. And that's what we're trying to go for. So I will actually put all the information on the website, including the code, uh, if you're interested. And it should be also in the description of, of the podcast. Uh, but yeah, please join us. It's very exciting. I had a lot of fun last time and it was very educational for everyone involved. So now we'll go ahead and talk a bit about our foreign body removals from the cornea. This is a pretty common presentation in my office. A certain percentage of my patients are construction workers or metal workers, so they tend to be exposed to foreign bodies flying around and sometimes ending in their eyes. Really, um, when somebody comes in, comes in complaining of a foreign body sensation, you do have to take a pretty careful history and physical. Your, your classic questions of when did it occur and what went into your eye are really important. But then again, you should do a full eye history, which includes asking about eye pain, about photophobia, about difficulty seeing, and about having a foreign body sensation, especially one that's preventing them from opening their eyes. Uh, remember that if you're dealing with a corneal abrasion, you often see these symptoms coming together, you know, the photophobia, the pain, the foreign body sensation and the issue with opening the eyes. And if there's a corneal abrasion, it's, this means that there might be a foreign body somewhere in there. Now you do your physical examination, really that you, when you're observing the eye, what you're trying to rule out for are emergencies such as an open globe, and that's pretty obvious, um, a hyphema, which is blood in the interior chamber, which again is pretty obvious, or a hypopion, which is pus in the interior chamber, again it can be pretty obvious. Um, if you don't have a slit lamp, and a lot of us don't in the office, you can use the ophthalmoscope to focus on the interior chamber and, and get a good look whether there's any fluid there or blood. Of course, your exam should include looking at visual acuity. It's, it's always something you should do when somebody comes in with an eye complaint. You should determine visual fields. and That's uh, easy to do in the office. It doesn't have to be something complex, but you can just uh, use the finger test. You should look at the pupils. 
whether they're reactive or not, and you can consider eye movements. So once you've done all of all those things, a history and a physical, then you should put in the fluorescein and do further exams, right? Now, before you move on, though, are there certain findings on this initial evaluation that that make you want to consult a specialist? And there certainly there are. Obviously, if there's an open globe, and as I alluded, a hypopion or hyphema, you should phone a grown-up, as, as we as we say in uh, the primary medicine podcast. Um, call the ophthalmologist on call and, let, and ask them to see the patient, or at least call the emerge doc on call to see the patient. The other thing that you should look out for is when you're doing the Snellen chart, if you notice there's a drop in vision of more than two lines on the chart. So, for example, from 20 to 20, 2060, you should consider, again, phoning a grown-up because it might mean that the foreign body might have penetrated further into the into the eye and affected affected vision more than it should have. Considering that the patient comes in, you've done your history and physical, and they don't present with any of those concerning findings, then you can proceed to put in fluorescein. Now, fluorescein can be a bit tricky to put in sometimes. Most offices have these strips, and you're supposed to jab the strip into the person's eye. Oh. I'm kidding here, but you're supposed to put it on the uh, around the eye, and they're supposed to blink, and then did their their natural tears would absorb the fluorescein and go into the eye. I find that it doesn't always work that well. That well. So what what I what I do is I actually use I I use the um, topical anesthetic, so usually tetracaine, to wet the strip itself, and I I do it over the person's eye, so the anesthetic drips down into the person's eye along with the fluorescein, and that that's the color the the cornea very easily seems to work very well and to me I find it uh, you know m- more practical than than putting the the ship in there because it doesn't always work especially if their eyes is not, not watering too much the good thing about about the anesthetic is that it tends to kick in pretty fast you know within, within a couple of minutes and you you'd actually know if if it's working or not because the patient will let you know whether they still have pain now if the pain's gone most likely the anesthetic has worked and then you can proceed to do the actual examination or you, you turn on the lights and use the blue light on your ophthalmoscope to visualize for any defects. They're very obvious. Uh, you see a small yellowish-green uh, change in the cornea, and that's where you would assume the foreign body will be. If you, if you can, at that point, you can use your ophthalmoscope again to focus on where the foreign body is. You're focusing on the cornea, not the interior chamber this time, but on the cornea, and you can often visualize it. So if you can visualize the foreign body, there's a couple of things that you can do in the office without a slit lamp to try and remove it. So number one, you can try flushing it with normal saline. You know, in my office, I have these little normal saline packs. That you can, and uh, you know, you can squeeze on them, and they, 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 you can flush over the eye. Sometimes that's enough. Just a bit of uh, water pressure is enough to to push the object off the cornea, and then you get the patient to blink. It eventually comes out. Now, if that's not working, the other option, and it's something that I've done a couple of times, and it, it seems to work pretty well, is to use a Q-tip. So you irrigate a Q-tip with normal saline, and then again, by f- focusing with the ophthalmoscope on the actual foreign body, you can very gently push on it and try to scrape it off. And sometimes that's good enough to, to mobilize it, and sometimes it's good enough to actually remove it. To get it stuck on the Q-tip. But, you know, one time, you know, we tried to do that on a patient, and we weren't able to to get it on the Q-tip. So we had 
send the patient to the eMERGE. By the time he got to the eMERGE, though, the, we had mobilized the the foreign body enough with the Q-tip that it naturally fell off of his eye because he was blinking, obviously, at that point in time. So, yeah, you try the Q-tip gently, of course, is a good way to, to dislodge. Now, if, if you're not able to remove the foreign body, you do have the option of waiting maybe 12 hours or 24 hours. It's a bit anecdotal, but there seems to be some evidence that giving it some time, uh, it may make the foreign body more easy to dislodge. So, so the patient, you know, make the patient come back in uh, next day, if they're not in horrible pain, that is, and then try again. Granted, you, you know that that's that's more useful in remote areas where maybe the emerge is not as accessible, but it's certainly an option, especially if they're not if they're if they're comfortable with that. You know, and if, if none of those options work, if you want a grown up, don't be aggressive. Be very careful if the foreign body is over the central visual field. In fact, if it's right over the central visual field. I, I wouldn't even try the needle unless you really know what you're doing. You know, sometimes you won't be able to get it off. So sometimes you, the office can be hard and you got to send them to the eMERGE where there's a slip lamp or to a specialist. Now, if you do manage to remove the foreign body, there is some post-procedural care you should consider. Really what you're doing here is you're treating the most likely, the, the, the likely corneal abrasion. It's, again, it's most likely they have corneal abrasion if they have a foreign body, so that's what you'll be treating there. So, you know, standard practice is to give some sort of topical antibiotic, even though evidence that it prevents infection is not very clear, but it's still standard of care. I tend to prefer giving the ointment over the drops because theoretically they lubricate better and they tend to protect the eye if, uh, and allow it to form new epithelium by, all, all, by really providing a barrier, whether the drops get absorbed immediately and have less of a barrier effect. So if, if you want to go with the ointment, uh, you can use erythromycin QID anywhere from three to five days. My experience has been that patients tend to prefer drops over the ointment, uh, but you know, something to discuss with them and they can make make a decision there you should obviously manage the pain because once the tetracaine or whichever anesthetic you're using you know peters out there they'll be in pain again and you can use oral NSAIDs or if you can use topical NSAIDs such as Ketrolac there's the question where you should patch or not up patching the the whole theory behind patching is that it forces the eyelid to close so it protects the lesion but also by closing the eyelid the defect, the epithelial, so the the corneal defect tends to heal faster. Now that's the theory. However, studies show that if it's a small uh, foreign body abrasion, which is most likely what you'll be seeing in your office, patching doesn't necessarily increase healing in patients or improve pain profiles, and in fact can have some disadvantages for the patient. So if you're dealing with a small defect, you don't need to patch. But again, it's something you can discuss with the patient as well. If it's a bigger defect, obviously patching may be a better, much better idea there. And I, I just want to finish off with two two last things here. And uh, number one is, and you get that, and you know, I get asked that a lot. Do not prescribe topical anesthetics to the patient, right? Because you know they feel so good after you've given them those couple of drops of tetracaine that they're like, well, why can't you just give that to me at home? 
The issue is, is that it does tend to delay corneal healing. It can actually lead to ulceration and perforation of the cornea. So there, there's that. You know, if if you overdo it, then you're putting the patient in danger. Not a good idea. The other thing that uh, is a bit obvious, but I will mention, is always flip the eyelid. So even if you if you don't find a foreign body, and you know they have this sensation, before you say, well, okay, well the foreign body's gone, always flip the eyelid. Not the easy skill to have to, to to do, but when they have an aesthetic on, but I think quite necessary. Make sure there's nothing under that eyelid, and if even if you do find something on the cornea, always flip the eyelid to make sure there's nothing nothing under the, under there, in addition to what you found. But but that's that's pretty much the summary here. So so Kevin, that's the way I've I've approached foreign body moves in the cornea in the office. Uh, what about yourself? You must get a lot of these in the emerge. Yeah, so like sometimes I feel like inundated with them because they often do present acutely in the emerge. Now everyone's office is a little bit different. By and large, it's very useful to have a slit lamp. And in addition to using fluorescein staining and a close exam of the naked cornea, you also want to use the fluorescein staining to look for a Seidel sign, which is evidence of a perforation of the cornea and, and fluid leaking out from the anterior chamber. And when that occurs, um, you really should be speaking to an ophthalmologist. So my only specific pointers on corneal foreign bodies are a few of them. Number one, it's not about winning. So don't let that little speck of metal or whatever it is embedded in somebody's cornea get the better of your sense of calm and cool collectedness. So please don't go digging in there aggressively um, just to win, quote unquote, and get it out because you might lose the war by perforating their cornea or um, seriously damaging um, the visual axis. And that leads me to the next point, and that is um, I tend to be quite ginger about these things when they are overlying the corneal axis or the visual axis, pardon me. And what that is, is that's essentially where the light is going to come into the pupil. And you'll get a lot of that off their visual acuity, but also you get a lot of it by just looking at it going, wow, it's in the middle of the eye. Um, I don't really want to be digging in there too aggressively. So you'd mentioned to me, Tree, that you use um, like a, a wet, a wetted Q-tip. And I think that's a great first step. I will actually, depending on the patient, depending on the location, the type of foreign body, I will actually use small gauge needle, like a 20 or 23, to uh, remove it from the surface of the cornea with a gentle sweeping action. You're not a, it's not a poke or a dig or a flick. You're not shoveling. You're just going to see if you can gently scoop it out. By doing that, you can often get rid of a lot of corneal foreign bodies. Now, a real trick around eyeballs is that people don't like theirs touched. And so I start the whole visit off in a very calm, confident manner. Because if you're in a rush and you're kind of twitchy, and I'm a little bit on the neurotic side, so I have to put my own brakes on. But if you're in a rush and you're twitchy, your patients go from being a little unnerved to very unnerved. And they'll start, you know, rolling their eyes around. They'll start wiggling out of their seat. And then that's going to make your job a lot harder and a lot less safe. So I really focus, even before I get close to touching their eye, simply in setting the tone of the visit by being calm and relaxed. I often freeze them up very, very well before I do this, and I just talk them through it. I tell them to look at the top of their head or look somewhere else so they don't really see the needle coming. 
be frank with you, I, I have never done this myself. I've seen it done. It's a skill that I would want to learn, but I would want to learn it with supervision from somebody who's done it a couple of times at least. So I, I don't go that far. I go as far as you could, but I do not go to the needle. You, you're dealing with somebody's eyes and you can damage the cornea easily if you don't know what you're doing, you don't know how much pressure you're putting. Now, when the needle fails, I will uh, often go to the alger brush. And what that is, is it's just this uh, little thing. It's a little cylinder that you hold in your hand. It's got a battery inside and it spins and it makes a sort of horrifying buzzing sound. But it's a magnetized little bit at the end that can often flick off or attract a metal foreign body or any other foreign body on there. It's relatively safe. Like all things on the eye, you want to be careful how much you're doing because you can rapidly erode through the cornea and perforate them. So again, I use that, but it really wraps up to the fundamentals, which is if it's not coming, don't force it because you'll often push it further into the cornea or you run the risk of perforation or you run the risk of scarring the cornea, creating a real mess for the person. So if it's really not coming, simply pick up the phone, speak to an ophthalmologist or make a referral to an optometrist or some kind of follow-up with an expert, right? Because those are who you really want to rely on in the tricky cases. Any um, questions at all, Dimitri? That's sort of the eMERGE perspective on it. Um, but I do find the slit lamp to be very useful, not only identifying the object, but helping navigate the alga brush um, to it. Yeah, no questions. And in fact, those alga brushes aren't, aren't that expensive. I think you can get one for around $70 to $100. So that's something that might be very useful in your eMERGE department if you don't have it already. Um, but yeah, yeah, don't, I mean, I agree, especially with that, don't fight it, right? Don't don't fight it's it. It's not about winning. It's yeah, exactly. not about winning. You don't get a uh, prize uh, for hoisting up the foreign body on the end of your alga brush uh, while you perforated their cornea. You just don't get a prize. We were doctors tend to be a bit obsessive and yeah, and we're very we're very uh, what is it results oriented and instant gratification, right. no. which I tend to love about my uh, job. But yeah, don't but, be afraid to call call a friend and call a specialist. Or if you're in, a, in the office, call your the eMERGE physician yeah. if, you, if you can't get it. And that's what happened with the last case. Yeah, the eMERGE like, physician actually helped us a lot. Like the guy I had who got speared with a giant stake through his buttock. Yes, I went digging. Yes, I got it all out. Yes, it was like, hooray, when he got impaled through the buttock. But again, you know, didn't hit any vital structures. Uh, eyeballs, you only get two of them. You don't want to be the guy that cost them one of them. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. uh, more wisdom. So, more wisdom from, from Dr. Kevin. Yeah. And again, I uh, hope, hope to see you guys uh, at a conference. I'll leave the information on the website in the description. Uh, thank you for joining us, Kevin. And until uh, next time. Yeah, honestly, like I said, it would be great to have some of our primary medicine podcast listeners come out and join us. Not only, you know, is it going to be very, very educational, I guarantee it, I'll refund all your money if uh, it wasn't educational. But uh, it'll be a lot of fun. There'll be a little bit of a social event on the Saturday night as well. Uh, be great to go out and have a drink with uh, some of our listeners. Thank you again. Thank you, Dimitri. And um, I think I'll wrap that up. Yeah, take care. Cheers. Thank you.